You see, Jesus isn't just something we add on to our lives, add on to our lives to help us with all of the other things that we want to do. No, as God's people, as the church, Jesus is the center, the focus, priority number one. And when we build everything else around him, we fulfill our purpose as the church and become God's loving presence in the world. When we build everything else around him, we find our place at the table and all of life is filled with the light and life and truth and love of God. little books in the Bible, just one, two, or three chapters long, but they all tell great big stories. Prophetic books like Joel and Haggai that talk a lot about our hearts, actually. Joel tells us that what God wants is our hearts. Return to me with all your heart, the Lord says. Rend your heart and not your clothing. You see, what God wants is for our hearts to be broken open so that God can have access to the deepest parts of our lives, so that the deepest parts of who we are can be open and available to God's grace. And Haggai, through the prophet Haggai, the Lord tells us to take courage, literally to set our heart on the things of God, and to not be afraid to work for God's purposes in the world because God is with us. There's some little books with big stories in the New Testament too. Most of them are letters, letters written to some of the early churches, letters like Titus, which is a letter about God's grace. God's grace, God's power to change us from people who are focused on things of the world and the ways of the world into people who are not only focused on the things of God, but people whose lives actually reflect Christ into the world. God's grace can make us into people who think and act and love like Jesus in our homes and in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and everywhere we go. We're looking at another one of those little letters from the New Testament this morning. It's a letter called 2 John. As the name implies, it's the second letter that John wrote. He wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Whoever named these letters was not very creative, but they get the point across. 1 John, 2 John, Third John. And John wrote these letters to a network of house churches in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. And each of these letters have the same language and same style as the Gospel of John. So this guy named John, a leader in the early church, we believe he wrote the Gospel of John, First John, Second John, and Third John, all four of those books in the New Testament. And John is writing these letters in particular to these churches in Ephesus. And these churches in Ephesus are mostly made up of Jewish Christians who have recently gone through a crisis, a conflict. What happened was there was this group of people who had been part of this network of churches, but this group had broken off and separated themselves. And they broken off because they had decided that Jesus is not, in fact, the Messiah. They had decided that Jesus, after all, was not the Son of God. But they didn't just decide that and leave. They decided that, left, and kept coming back to stir up trouble among the people who had remained faithful to the church, or among the people who had remained faithful to Jesus. So 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John are essentially damage control, letters of instruction and encouragement for keeping the faith, for staying true to Jesus in the midst of crisis and in the face of, ter- face of troublemakers. 
First John is kind of like the sermon to begin the series. It's a, a reminder not about anything new. There's no new teaching in it, but it's reminding all of the people in these churches of what they already know. And John does that by highlighting four key themes that come right out of the gospel of John. Light, life, truth, and love. Light, life, truth, and love. First John is the sermon to remind everyone that the God they've met in Jesus is the God of life, light, truth, and love. And then Second John and Third John, which we're going to read this morning and next week, pick up those same themes, but also directly address the conflict that's happening in these ancient churches. So that's the background, the context to help us as we read 2 John this morning. And, and it really is a little book. The whole thing is just 13 verses long. In the Greek, it's 245 words. 2 John is the second shortest book in the New Testament, beaten only by 3 John, which we're going to read next week. And because it's so short, I'm going to read the whole thing this morning. I'm going to invite you to follow along. The text is printed in your bulletin. Uh, and then we'll circle back through it uh, to try to understand why this letter written 2,000 years ago is something we should care about today. So if you uh, want to follow along, open up your Bible to 2 John or, or the text of it's printed in your bulletin. We're going to begin in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but, but one that we have had from the beginning, let us love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, you, commandment just as you have heard it from the beginning, you must walk in it. Many deceivers have gone in, out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may receive a full reward. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. Although I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you their greetings. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So why is this little letter in the Bible? It's written to a specific group of people in a specific faraway place to, a to address a spe specific internal conflict they're having a long time ago. Why should a letter like that matter to us? It's not because we have the same internal conflict they have. It's not because it gives clear instruction on how to handle modern day problems. We care about little letters in the New Testament written long ago because when we read them carefully, they teach us how to be faithful Christians. They teach us how to be a faithful church no matter what life is like. This is the wonder of scripture, that a letter written to someone long ago and far away to teach them how to be faithful 
is also a letter written to us to teach us how to be faithful in our wildly different modern circumstances. How does 2 John help us live faithfully today? There are three things that I see. The first is about our place, about our place in the community called the church. The second is about our purpose, our purpose as the church. And the third is about our priority. Our priority is people who have lots of things competing for our time and attention. So here's how John begins the letter. Verse one, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now this is a standard opening for an ancient letter. The person who is writing names themselves and then names the person to whom they are writing. The elder, that's John, to the elect lady and her children. This is a unique thing. The place, the, the person uh, who John, to whom John is writing is the elect lady. And this is the only letter in the New Testament that's addressed to a woman. And not just to a woman, but also to her children. And the way John writes this sentence is both intentionally vague and incredibly clever. So the letter's addressed to the elect lady. In Greek, those two words are electa kyria. And those two words together could indeed mean this generic greeting, the elect, the chosen lady. But these two words, electa kyria, also happen to be very common first names for women in ancient Greece. So, electa and kyria might be actual individual people, which means that the letter might be addressed to electa, the lady who leads this church, or to the chosen kyria, the one elected to lead this church, and to her children. So it's intentionally vague. We don't know exactly what John intends, but it's also incredibly clever because it reveals, even today, it reveals something deep about our place and about your place in the community called the church. You see, in the ancient world, women and children were essentially property. They were the property of the men. In the pecking order of society, women and children were way down at the bottom. But what we learn from this letter and from other witnesses in the New Testament is that from the very beginning of the church, women and children were valued members of the community. And not only were they valued members, they were equal members of the church which meant that from the beginning, women and young people were leaders in a church in a way that they never were out in the world. So our family has this great tradition, and it's not, uh, I have to give credit where credit is due, so it's actually Elizabeth's family that has this great tradition that I've been grafted into. Every Easter, my in-laws have a big Easter dinner. The whole family arrives after church, so do a lot of other people, friends who are like family, but also a smattering of people who are uh, somewhere along the lines of acquaintance to longtime family friend, but, but who are find themselves orphaned in Houston, alone in Houston, um, uh, on that Easter Sunday. And there are toddlers running around having a great time. There are bigger kids complaining that they're bored. There are couples and singles. There are people who are really glad to be there and people who probably wish they were someone, wish they were somewhere else. There are quiet people and loud people. It's this great conglomeration of folks. And as you might imagine, the dinner table is too small to fit everyone around it, for, for every, to seat everyone. But my mother-in-law decided long ago that it's best for everyone to eat together. So 
She just builds a bigger table. She'll put all the leaves into the dining table to make it as big as it can be, and then she'll put a card table next to it, uh, and then she'll bring in the kitchen table, and that'll go here, and then there's a table from the garage that extends out here, and if we need to, more card tables can line up into the hallway uh, to extend around this big table, and when it's time to eat, when the food is ready, everyone has a chair around the table. And when everyone goes to a seat, what they'll find there is a little card with their name on it. So it is with the church. Everyone has a place around the table, a place just for them, young or old, new or longtime members. Everyone has a place around the table where they will meet the Lord face to face in the church where God's grace is available to all. Now the church has not always gotten this right. And we in the church still have a lot of work to do when it comes to treating people equally and welcoming, in, welcoming them into the life of the church. But never, never, ever think that you don't have a place in the church. Never, ever think that someone else doesn't have a place in the church. Likewise, never, ever believe that your gifts or your presence are somehow less valuable than that of someone else. I hear stuff like this all the time. Sometimes it's directly, sometimes I hear it just in passing conversation, but people assume, people assume that they're a less valuable member of the community because they don't have much time to volunteer because they don't have as much time as someone else. People assume that they're a, a less important member of the community because they work on weekends and they, they can't be here every Sunday. They assume that they're less important in this community because uh, they don't have a lot of money, can't give big sums to fund ministry. Now, it's true that God has given different gifts to different people, and, and I understand that it may be the case that you have felt undervalued at some point in the church because someone made you feel that way or because you convinced yourself that you were less valuable than someone else. But here's the truth. Everyone has an equally important place in the life of the church. Your role will look different than your role and that'll look different than your role and that's exactly how God intends it to be. But the thing, the one thing we all have in common is that the church is better and more faithful when you fill your place and use your gifts. You have a place in the church and the church has a purpose. This is the second way John helps us live faithfully today, by reminding us that the church, all of us together, has a purpose. And John has a very specific way of talking about the church's purpose. This is verse five. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning, let us love one another. The purpose of the church is to love, to love God, to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love the world, to love those who are more fortunate than we are, to love those who are less fortunate than we are, to love those who are close by and those who are far away, to love the people who love us and to love our enemies. This is the commandment that God has given since the very beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the commandment that Jesus gives again to his disciples at the Last Supper. And to paraphrase him just slightly, this is how they'll know that you're the church. If you love like I have loved, 
you. And it's the song that Christians have been singing for generations. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. You have a place in the church. The church has a purpose to love and you will faithfully find your place and the church will faithfully fulfill its purpose when we focus on the right priority. This is verse seven. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard. This is the crux of the conflict in the church that John is writing to. There are people who are trying to convince the church that Jesus doesn't matter that the priority lies somewhere else. And, and we don't know all the specifics of their argument, but each of us faces the same dilemma every day. Each of us faces the temptation to think that the priority lies somewhere else. Now, this past week, I've told you probably five times already that this past week was Vacation Bible School. And I love Vacation Bible School. It's my favorite week of the summer. But every VBS week, without fail, Friday afternoon rolls around and I don't have a sermon prepared because I've been doing all sorts of other wonderful things throughout the week. So I sat down on my, at my computer on Friday afternoon and I said to myself, okay, priority number one, get a sermon written. And if John, whose letter I was reading, was sitting next to me, he would have said, no, priority number one is Jesus. Priority number one is knowing and loving Jesus. And when you make Jesus the priority in your thinking and doing, all the other work you have to do will be empowered and inspired by him. I think about that in the life of our church right now, too. I mean, at least in the office some days, we think, okay, priority number one, get these renovations done on time and on budget. But no, priority number one is Jesus. Because if we make Jesus our priority, then the building we occupy and the ministry we do in it will be filled with the love and the grace and the power of the Lord. This is the third way that Second John helps us to live faithfully today by instructing us to make Jesus the priority, to make Jesus the priority in our individual lives and in our collective life as the church. Priority number one for every Christian every day is to love and to know Jesus, God's own son who lived and died and rose again for our sake. Priority number one is to know and love Jesus who gave himself to free us from slavery to sin and death, and to free us for an abundant life of giving ourselves for others. You see, Jesus isn't just something we add on to our lives, add on to our lives to help us with all of the other things that we want to do. No, as God's people, as the church, Jesus is the center, the focus, priority number one. And when we build everything else around him, we fulfill our purpose as the church and become God's loving presence in the world. When we build everything else around him, we find our place at the table and all of life is filled with the light and life and truth and love of God. And in just a minute, we'll gather around this table. We'll share together in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And when you come up here, when you come forward and receive a piece of bread and dip it into the juice, you will have an encounter with the Lord. Jesus Christ will meet you here. Let him become priority number one. Let him enter into the center of your life. Let him welcome you to your place at the table. Let's pray. 
God of all grace. We know that you've prepared a place in your church just for us. We know that our purpose as your people is to love and to let your love flow out of us to everyone we meet. And so we pray that with the help of your spirit, we can make your son Jesus priority number one in our lives to build everything else around him and to give all honor and glory to you. Amen. Amen.